I wonder what Christmas means to you. I'm one of five children, so Christmas for me always used to mean like uh, lots of presents and uh, lots of people and lots of chaos, if I'm totally honest. But, but because I was one of five, you can never quite escape the sense that the presents are being spread a little bit too thinly around the family. Like you might get a bit more if you had one less brother or one less sister. And... Um, and <laughs> And uh, you always can't resist comparing them. You're always nervous that maybe someone might get a slightly better present than you, or yours might be not quite as good. And that was combined by the fact that my dad uh, was born and bred in Barnsley, uh, kind of a mining town in southern Yorkshire. And he had left school, actually had quite a difficult childhood, left school at 15 and started working in the coal mines. And so actually his greatest fear when he moved down south to uh, start a family was that the children he would raise might become like quite entitled, uh, slightly ungrateful, spoilt brats. So he didn't really like the idea of giving us any presents at all at Christmas, but, um, but he didn't, particularly didn't like giving us too many presents or too valuable presents. So we had this constant complaint, which was, we always have the worst presents. Like at school, in any context we're in, we would get the worst presents. And we'd say to Dad, look, this person's got a much better present than us. And he said, bet their parents don't love them. And even as a seven-year-old, the logic of that didn't quite follow. But um, so, and, and one, one particular year, everyone at school uh, had had been getting computers, and we, were, we felt like we we're the only kids who didn't have a computer. So we've been begging, Dad, can we have a computer? Can we have a computer? He wasn't having any of it. He said it'd been a really difficult year, and we tried everything we could. We tried to sell the educational value angle, but he wasn't having that either. So it came to Christmas Day, and um, and to our surprise, he came in with this huge present, like this really big, quite heavy, computer-sized present. And so the fivers kind of leapt forward and we started tearing off the wrapping paper and we looked in and to our shock, in this box were a number of bricks. And um, <laughs> not Lego bricks, actual house bricks. And uh, he's like, Merry Christmas. And I... <laughs> I mean, it's polite to say when you're given any present, really, you know, oh, thanks so much, it's what I wanted, I'm so grateful. But it's quite hard to do that when you're given an actual brick as a seven-year-old. And, um, and I wasn't really sure how to respond. All I could think was, I'm going to be recounting this one day to a counsellor. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's uniform, there was no comparison to be made. That was a good thing, I guess. Um, and it is, it's not this entirely unuseful, you can't use it to build, literally. But, um, but it wasn't really a bullseye present for us. And so we were quite upset, and we were getting angry with him, and he was getting frustrated, and um, we had one of those rows that families do on Christmas Day. And it, it, it kind of ended with him saying, well, go and get your own present then. We are like, we will. And the, the children stormed out of the house into our front garden. We'll show him. We're kind of marching around. But actually, there's not much in the front garden, really, that you can give yourself as a Christmas present. And uh, we, we were kind of looking, looking, looking. And then eventually, I found myself on one side of our front garden, and there were some bins by the street. And I was just so angry. You know how you can be a little bit melodramatic when you're a seven-year-old? Like, my life has come to this. I'm getting a brick <laughs> for Christmas Day. And I started kicking. There were some boxes there, some old cardboard boxes by the bins. I was just kicking them. And actually, the second one I kicked made a clunk noise, like it wasn't empty. I thought, oh, I thought it was empty. And so I reached into the cardboard box, and to my wonder, I pulled out a brand new computer. And I kind of said to my brother and sister, come, come, look, it's, it's a miracle. We've, 
someone's left a computer here by the bins. And we were like, this is amazing, this is amazing. We were kind of really excited and smiling and cheering. And in the noise, my dad kind of came out of the house and he was like looking over. We're like, it's a computer, we've got a computer, you can keep your brick. And, uh, <laughs> and he, he was smiling too. And we were kind of, we were like, we thought we'd done it. And he was kind of looking at us. And then, and then I suddenly realized, yeah, I think, He's a little bit too pleased with himself. And um, I look back at the bins. I look down at this computer. I look back at my dad, who was smiling away. And I thought, he orchestrated the whole thing. What kind of a person does that? You can't, you can't perform psychological experiments on seven-year-olds. Forgiven him now, of course. And, um, but it's a little bit like Christmas in a way, because um, at Christmas, you're surrounded by lots of things that demand your attention. They sparkle. They make great promises, but they don't really deliver. They were like the box full of bricks. Yet you can walk past the very thing that looks like it's been discarded, a bit rubbish, but could have in it everything you ever wanted. It's easy to miss the relevance or the significance of this Christmas story. I mean, how does the story of a baby born 2,000 years ago, 2,000 miles away in a tiny corner of the Middle East have any relevance for me? It surprised me that the story might not only be true, but that it might make a difference for me. Jesus described in the reading we just had so beautifully read as as being full of grace and truth. And we need grace and truth. Without truth, there's no trust. And without trust, relationships can't grow. There's no possibility of friendship. But without grace, without forgiveness and mercy and grace, which is treating people better than they deserve, friendships don't last very long. And at the moment, I don't know about you, it feels there's a desperation in our city, maybe even in our nation. Like we're we're crying out for grace and truth in our political debate, in our public discourse, even in our personal relationships. And it's funny because I'd always thought that the nativity was kind of a lot of very holy, glowing people kind of gathered around a crib. And my life is just a bit more complex than that. It's a bit more messy. I don't know if you feel that way. I mean, maybe your job is complex. Maybe your colleagues are a bit complex. Maybe you've got a difficult boss. Maybe you are a difficult boss. (laughs) Maybe, you know, you found... Relationships can be messy. Life isn't always straightforward. I don't know if you've found yourself, as I have, from time to time after a difficult day, waking up at two in the morning in the dark and thinking, you know, is it, is it actually going to be okay? And then we have questions. Like, what's my value? What's my purpose? Even if I achieve all that I set my sights on, am I going to be satisfied? I don't want to get to the top of the ladder to find it's just been leaning against the wrong wall. And my identity, am I just the sum of what the people I most care about think about me? Could I ever be truly loved for who I really am? Well, even at his birth, Jesus attracted people who needed grace and truth. Mary, so young, so vulnerable, having just journeyed 90 miles, giving birth, facing all the complexity of having a baby when you're a teenager, before you're even married, in a culture in which everyone would have had an opinion about that and everyone would have had an opinion about her. Joseph, a young guy, probably wondering how on earth he ended up in a shed with his fiancée as she gives birth to a baby which isn't his. 
trusting, hoping it's true that this baby is a saviour, that he's going to bring grace. Shepherds, slightly dodgy characters, despised and looked down on, distrusted, probably confused as to how of all people in the world, they got summoned to be at the birth of the one who came to save the world. People are drawn to grace and truth. And I need grace and truth. I worked as a a criminal defense barrister for a number of years, and our criminal justice system is founded on a search for truth. That might be a surprise to you. Um, (laughs) A little bit about money, but mainly about truth. And um, actually, over the years, I've represented hundreds, probably over a 1,000 people accused of crimes. It's great that a few of you have come out tonight. And... uh, (laughs) You kind of, when you're spending all day, every day, cross-examining witnesses, testing evidence, you develop a bit of a radar for when someone's not telling the truth. But when I read the, and I read the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, I think these are true. They actually happen. People are describing what they actually saw. He did come. He really did die on a cross. He really did rise from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, if you can trust that evidence, if it's true, then you can trust every single thing he said. I need truth, but I also need grace. I need to know this is good news for me. Grace is God's undeserved love. It's the grace that he shows us by giving Jesus for us. That forgiveness, that blessing, that promise of purpose. I need grace. Even lawyers need grace. When I started working as a barrister, I was just 22, and I looked about 16, and uh, on my first week, you know, I was so desperate to make a good impression, I was sent to court and I was just given a post-it note with a client's name on and they just said, look, he needs to get bail, get him bail, and get him out on bail. And so I said, okay, so I rushed down to court, I met this guy in the cells, within about 30 seconds it was obvious he knew far more about our criminal justice system than I did, he'd had much more experience of it. And, um, and I looked at the facts, I thought it was going to be very difficult to get this guy bail, and then I went outside the courtroom and all his friends were there uh, and... They were all very excited about whether or not he'd get bail. And so I went into court. I did my best. I tried as best as I could to persuade the judge, uh, but she wasn't having any of it. And she started delivering her judgment. It was obvious she was going to refuse bail. And I kind of sat there, and I was so frustrated, so disappointed. I mean, I really wanted to make an impact at my first week at work. And then as she finished her judgment and refused bail, my client elbowed the two security officers on either side of him and then ran out of court. And all his friends came running into court and started fighting the security officers and then all these alarms and sirens went off and the courtroom filled with security officers and police and everything else. And I was just sitting there open mouth thinking, this is going to make an impact. (laughs) And then one of his mates kind of looks over at me and says, what are you doing sitting there? Get over here and help. And I'm thinking, what do you want me to do? And after a while, as it started to quieten down, I thought, well, probably my work here is done. So I started to leave, and I walked outside the court. There was a row of police cars trying to block the streets. They were trying to catch him. They hadn't managed to catch him. They couldn't find him. I eventually made my way back to the office. I went in, and um, one of the senior people uh, I was working with, you know, just showing an interest, uh, came up to me and said, Stephen, how did it go? Did he get out? what do you say? Like, I think, I think so. <laughs> sort, sort of. And as I walked home that night, I, I actually felt like a complete failure. I wonder if you've ever felt like that, that disconnect between how things are happening and how you had hoped them to be. When you've messed up, either at work or in a relationship, you've let people down, maybe you've let yourself down. I've experienced that. 
much more serious ways than that. I've almost set my life on fire at least three times. I've let people down. I've hurt people, people I love. But failure is an incident, not an identity. My father-in-law was staying with us that night, and he said something to me I've never forgotten. He said, Stephen, when I hire people, I buy their mistakes. I'm buying what they've learned on the way. And you know, I found that the very things I thought meant I couldn't come close to Jesus, meant I didn't belong near him, were the very reasons why he had come close to me. He knew I didn't need a religious teacher or some kind of perfect example. He knew I needed a savior, someone to buy my mistakes and still have a purpose for my life. And all sorts of people are drawn to Jesus. People who are successful and nailing it in life. People who are hanging on by their fingertips. People who have some kind of faith they discovered as a child. People who would never think of themselves as religious. They're drawn to what they see in Jesus. Grace and truth together. And all great friendships need grace and truth. Without truth, if it's just filters and front, there's no possibility of a real connection. But without grace, that connection's never going to last. And because Jesus was full of grace and truth, he sees you just as you are. You know, all of the good, all that you're proud of and push to the surface. Your kindnesses, your hopes, your dreams. And all of the stuff we're a little bit ashamed of and try and hide. Our disappointments, our fears, our confusions, maybe our regrets. Jesus loves you to the bottom of your soul. Right there, he sees everything. He sees you to the bottom of your soul, and yet he loves you to the sky. You know, Christmas isn't about being perfect. It's not about being good and getting a nice present or being bad and getting a lump of coal or a house brick. I don't know if you had the same experience I did of going to Santa's Grotto as a kid. And you're being asked, have you been good this year? And you know the truth, but you also want a present, so you kind of... You kind of say yes, and then you leave. You feel a bit like you've undermined your integrity, slightly sullied by the whole experience. And I wish I could go back now. And when Santa said to me, have you been good this year? Say, no, I haven't. But let's be honest, Santa, neither had you. <laughs> the truth is, life is difficult. It's complex. It's hard to be good for a whole hour, even if I really try, let alone to be good for 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And even if I could, Santa, I'm not sure that would be a life well lived. I think I'm made for more than mere morality. And actually, Santa, while we're on it, if Christmas is about anything, it's about grace. And grace is about an undeserved gift, an undeserved presence. So it doesn't really matter if I've been good or if I've been bad. All that matters is that I'm willing to receive the present that is offered to me. And on balance, Santa, I am. So please stop asking your stupid questions and give me my present. <laughs> Christmas doesn't mean you can have a present if you've been perfect. That's not good news. You don't give gifts to people because they're perfect and never made a mistake. You give gifts to people because you love them. And in all of the mess and chaos of life, God has given Jesus for us, for me, for you. Not because we deserve it, but because we are loved. That's why he paid the price. That's why he gave his life, shed his blood to win you grace. And it's in a relationship with Jesus, full of grace and truth, that I have found life in all its fullness. I found joy in the face of sorrow, peace in the storms of life, purpose 
in the midst of confusion, a hope that's greater than fear and a love that is stronger than death. Jesus came for you. He gave himself for you to save you. He loves you.